Välkommen till Historier från gatan. En podcast som skapar en levande social historia om gatuartisteri och några av de knäppa karaktärerna som lever i den världen. And just in case your Swedish is a bit rusty, welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters that populate this world. My name is David Aiken. I'm the checkerboard guy, and I'm your host for this growing collection of interviews. About a year ago, we released our first short story called Jedi on the Pitch, which featured a nugget from Magic Brian's conversation with Charlie Caper. This time around, we dive back into that same recording and get a bit more of Charlie's history. I found it fascinating working on this episode because I've never actually met Charlie yet completely related to his journey. It reminded me of an email exchange I had with Stuart Avery from Dolphin Creative who runs the Street Performers Festival in Dubai. Stuart commented, and I quote, It's fascinating to listen to the personalities that, on one hand, are all so different, but on the other, all share an ethos of life and code of ethics. Why did you become a street performer is a question I've often heard, and my favorite response is always, I didn't choose it, it chose me. I think this is true for many of our tribe, and particularly true when it comes to Charlie Caper. This is a guy who, before becoming a street performer, had a ton of other options that he could have pursued. That Charlie fell in love with street performing perhaps derailed him from society's version of success, but opened up his life to the amazing adventures he's had around the world. Adventures filled with so many great stories from the pitch. Okay, I am here with Charlie Caper in Stockholm, Sweden. We've just finished the fourth Installment of the Stockholm Street Theater Festival. Yep. And um, now we're just hanging out. Yep. Tell me how you got started in life. In life. Yeah. It's a bit like. Where were you born? Oh, I was born in Malmo, which is a. It's actually the third biggest town in Sweden, but it's really small by international standards. Uh, in the south of Sweden, right next to Copenhagen. That's it. Yeah, that's where I was born. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> should you just keep going and finish at age 86 or is that the, the idea <laughs> yeah I guess I was really specific with that first question <laughs> where were you born so what was it like growing up in Malmo nice I had a quite idyllic childhood actually yeah I had really great parents my dad is a social worker and my mom is a sexologist like a sex therapist yeah kind of or yeah she worked in a Medical reception for teenagers that have questions about sex or have, like want to check if they have an STD or like see if they're pregnant or have an abortion or whatever, like all kinds of stuff like that. Wow. How old were you when she had the sex talk with you? I don't remember ever having it. <laughs> I just remember having, like when we had water wars when I was a kid, that we didn't use balloons, we used condoms because they were free. <laughs> <laughs> and they never break, so you have to fill them with really a lot of water. <laughs> Very dangerous <laughs> water battles. So that's an interesting childhood. No, but I just have like really kind of understanding, sensible parents. Not a tough childhood. I mean, everyone has sort of tough childhoods in their own head, but if I was to compare mine to anyone else's, it's probably pretty easy and nice. Yeah. So when did you start doing magic? What was your... I started when I was like nine years old, uh, approximately. <laughs> but I actually know exactly how I started. I was a very nerdy kid. And I got nerded in on memory technique, like how to memorize large numbers or like strings of letters and shit like that. And I also hung out at the library like several days a week. I knew all the librarians personally by name and shit. You're a library like nerd. Yeah, and one guy who's written about memory technique is a guy called Harry Lorraine. Yeah. 
And uh, he's also a magician, as you well know. I do. So I went looking for one of his books once before going on like a sort of a summer holiday thing for a couple of weeks. And then there was a magic book as well, and I got that book too, like written by the same author on the same shelf. We went on this boring, like imagine a really boring seaside holiday on a small island where there's nothing to do except throwing darts at your kid brother or, or like swim in the sea. That was about it. That was it. I like you had a very specific example of things you do, like throwing <laughs> darts at your kid brother. I actually think I did it that summer, and one got stuck in like his leg, and I had to pull it out with pliers. <laughs> if you listen to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is this the first time you've apologized to him for that? Oh, we're becoming good friends, actually, <laughs> after 32 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was nothing to do. So, and I had a deck of cards and I had that book. So I learned the tricks in that book really well. Around nine like, years old. In that time, yeah, I just learned a bunch of the tricks from that book well. Well enough so that I could do them and people would go, wow, that was crazy, how do you do that? And by learning a couple of tricks that actually had an effect on people, like sleight of hand card tricks, that was sort of my entry into it. And then I, I had an interest for my whole life from then on that went like up and down up until the age of like... 22 or something and then that's the only thing I've done since then but so you just did as just for yourself you weren't performing no I I weren't performing properly I was doing card tricks for people in school and stuff like that and I had a couple of gigs I started getting gigs when I was like 14 15 but it was like a quite an on and off thing mostly cards and mostly card tricks up now I don't like cards at all I know some of the best card magicians in the world and they do really crazy stuff. And then I know some really lousy card magicians. And they also do really crazy stuff. It's easy to do card tricks. It's just like with card magic, so much has already been done. It's just so exploited. And there's so many areas of magic that you could explore where no one's done anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm, And I'm like, well, it's more fun to do something there instead. Okay, like, fair enough. So you started with cards, did that for a while. Yeah, but I had a big lapse when I was like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my girlfriend at the time, Sophia, her best friend Amanda had a birthday party. And I was at the birthday party, and her dad was this sort of guy who was just there, but he was just hanging out in his own room. And halfway through the night, I was like, What's your dad? Like, wh- wh- he's just gone. Like, oh, he's in his magic room doing tricks. And I'm like, What? Really? And I went and knocked on the door, and he opens the door. And I'm like, You do magic? I do magic tricks as well. I saw the skepticism in his eyes. And I showed him a card trick that was an okay card trick, I guess. And he was like, wow, you actually know some stuff. Oh, cool. And he invited me in, and then I did tricks with him for the rest of the evening. And you got to meet a real magician. Yeah, I got to know a real magician, and yeah. I had someone to talk to and be inspired by, and who could lend me stuff or show me stuff. It was really great. Did he become kind of a mentor? A bit of a mentor, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's the closest thing I've ever been to a mentor. Yeah. I've never completely had a mentor, but and he's the closest thing, definitely. So this is, this is when you're... This is when I was, like, in high school. I also had a guy in my class, actually, in my high school class, called Jacob Winstrom. He's one of the best magicians in Sweden now. He also had an interest in magic, so we sort of did some tricks together as well. But it wasn't, like, a constant thing I was doing. Yeah. And I really went into juggling as well. I, there was a while when juggling was my complete focus. Like a super nerd. Yeah. Juggling, magic, reading, computers... I studied a lot of weird things, actually. And in Sweden, it's free to study. So you don't have the pressure to actually do anything, <laughs> basically. 
I just randomly studied. At university, I've studied philosophy, uh, mathematics, pure mathematics, economic history, national economics, computer science, a lot of computer science with a specialization in artificial intelligence. I took uh, folkloristics, classical mythology, rhetorics, this entrepreneur course, maybe something more. You're kind of dumb then, so that's why you studied all this exactly. stuff. Exactly. Kind of I don't have a degree in anything. I just know lots of weird, random shit. All right, so let's get back on track with your career as a magician. You said 22. You were like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. Well, so I... You're still doing computers. Yeah, I moved to London, like, in 2000. Uh, For and what? I, actually, in Sweden, because studying is free. You get sort of pocket money from the state while you're studying to keep you afloat, so you don't have to have a job while you're studying. And then during this long two-and-a-half-month summer holiday, you don't get any money. So every summer, suddenly, there's like half a million students that need a job at the same time. And none of them normally work. Like, everyone needs a job at the same time. So it's impossible to find a job in Sweden for the summer. Of course they don't work, because everything's free. Yeah, exactly. So if you want a summer job in Sweden, you have to start applying, like, in November. Right. It's ridiculous. I'd never apply for anything far ahead. I'm lousy at that. But then my friend told me that in London, it's easy to get a job. And it was, actually. So me and my girlfriend at the time went to London for a summer job. And I got quite a nice job as a translator from English to Swedish. And then I got promoted to be a programmer before we were going to go back. So then I was like, oh, shit. I'm in the same company. You were translating yeah, yeah. for like a they, they realized that I was a really good computer programmer while I was translating stuff. They were like, I impressed the chief of the programming team. And so he was like, um, I think you should work for my team instead. Yeah. And then he just did the bureaucracy within the, it was a really big company I was working for. So then I have a position as a computer programmer now. So maybe it's pointless to go back and study more computer science because I have a job. A job yeah. I'm already making a salary more than school. my parents. So why should I... So sex education doesn't pay very much here? Uh, it's okay, but computer programming for a large transactional website pays you more. Yeah. So then we stayed in London, and I stuck with that job for like a year. Doing magic at all during that time? Yeah, yeah, I did some magic. The company I worked for actually owns Hilton, the hotel chain, so I did quite a lot of work in Hilton. Like corporate gigs? Yeah, like Close corporate up. gigs. Because my bosses at my job had seen me do card tricks and they recommended me to someone at Hilton who sort of hired me for a couple of things. I didn't work so much with it, but, you know, like a couple of big gigs a year and a couple of small gigs a year. Yeah. And that went on into 2001, pretty much 2002. I remember being in my office in London when September 11 happened. So by then I was still in an office. I know that. Now, I know you have a story when you were in London on the uh, underground that involves oh, yeah. magic. Yeah. This is before you started street performing, correct? Yep. Okay. This is when I had that programming job. Yeah. I think this is a great story. It actually took place just when I moved to London, in like the first months, because I made a big fail, like a big mistake. I, I was living really far from that job, like two hours on the train far yeah. away, so four hours on the subway every day. And it took a couple of months before I moved closer to the job. And uh, I used to sit and read books and do card tricks for myself, practice card tricks on the train. And uh, I was going back on the line down to Brixton. I used to live in Crystal Palace. And uh, sort of towards the end of this subway ride, it was in the evening, I'm sitting and I'm practicing some card moves, like uh, 
pulling the cards out of my mouth and practicing some shuffles and stuff. And then these guys walk on the subway train. They just have this energy that's wrong. You know, you feel that, oh, this is not nice. Like, something is afoot. Yeah. yeah. And I hid the deck of cards in my hand because I didn't want to draw any attention to myself. I just wanted to sit there and sort of be as... Invisible. Invisible as possible. Well, yeah, they started shouting something, like, well, uh, but sort of they all zoom in on me for some reason, like five or six guys, and one of them goes, like, give me your money. It's like a mugging on the subway. How many people were in the car with you? It was actually quite a few people. Yeah. It wasn't, like, only me. Yeah. There must have been, like, 15 people on the wagon. I remember there was a woman with a child, like, diagonally opposite from me. So there were some people, and they're like, give me, give me money. And I had just taken out the money for rent. And rent in London is expensive. Really? <laughs> so I had at least I don't know what that's like. Envelope with money I was going to give to my landlord. Yeah. It was ridiculous. And I had been practicing this move all day with a deck of cards, where you pull the deck of cards out of your mouth. And I had the deck of cards hidden in my hand already. So they give me your money. And out of some sort of panic, I pulled the cards out of my mouth <laughs> as a muscle response, like, bruh. <laughs> it's weird and the whole train car just freezes it's just quiet like everyone is just standing still and it feels like an eternity passes I still remember it I, it must have been just a couple of seconds but everything is just still and have you seen the second Bill and Ted movie yeah but they die and they're falling down towards hell yeah they're screaming like Ah! And then nothing <laughs> yeah. happens. Yeah. And they stop screaming like, yeah. what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like that, where I'm like, it's just still, and, I, and I, I'm first panicked. Like, I pull the cards out of my mouth, and everything freezes, and I wait, and then nothing happens. And I wait longer, and nothing else happens. And I'm just thinking, like, time stopped now. And I just take the deck of cards, I align them again into a deck. And I spread them into a nice fan in my hand, and I say, pick a card, pick any card. <laughs> and as if hypnotized, the leader of this gang is just like, grabs the card and pulls the card out. <laughs> You're the first magician in history to avoid a mugging by getting the card <laughs> It is pretty sweet. And then I take a pen, and I say, write your name, and he writes his name <laughs> on the card. And your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I just do a card trick, and maybe to this day even, it's the strongest reactions I've ever received on a trick. <laughs> it was like proper David Blaine freak-out reactions, like, whoa, oh my god, oh, no way, no, whoa, ah, like, whoa, and then the train stops at the station before Stockwell, I think it's the name of the station, and they're like, whoa, and they all shake my hand, like, thank you so much, wow. Great, that was great. Have a nice day. They all walk off. <laughs> like they forgot. And the doors close. <laughs> and now I'm safe. And I'm looking around like, did anyone see that? Is this... <laughs> is this real? Is this real? Like, what's the... <laughs> and yeah. then they held train erupting yeah. the applause. No, no. No one talked to anyone. It was just quiet. And then the train just goes one more stop. We all get off at Brixton. And I'm like walking home in some sort of... Days. Adrenaline days, yeah, yeah. like that's yeah, awesome. And maybe one of my big regrets in life when I'm oldest that I didn't really struggle to find out whether there were security cameras or if there was a film somewhere or like if there was. I should have really called up the train company and gone. I 
I want those surveillance tape, whatever. Like great promo video. It would have been amazing now. Like imagine if I just gave that to a TV station I was going to do an interview with. That would be like fucking big. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. yeah, it was a crazy situation. Cool. All right, we're going to move forward in your career. You're in London. You're 22. Well, yeah, yeah. Having this job, you've gone down to Covent Garden. Yeah. Were you looking for street theater? No, no. I had a Brazilian magician who was staying in my house called Felipe. A very funny guy, really social. He's one of these guys who'll get into the cinema for free by doing a card trick for the guy in the... Like, can he get stop someone from mugging him? I don't know, but... I, he can get I, a movie I, ticket for free, but... Yeah, but I was never been the person who's done like magic tricks left and right all yeah, the time. Like, But right. he was this person who yeah. just... And amazingly able at like... Getting a free sandwich from like you know just a person constantly yeah like Does on that work it? and um, he was staying in my house and he got to know Gary Stocker he's a magician out of London and Gary became a really good friend of mine but at that time at Magic Corner in Covent Garden as they call it James Street the corner of James Street in Covent Garden Gary was doing magic shows and Brian Bruno was playing guitar so, so this is when you had the job there. Exactly. So at that point, that pit was basically empty. Two people were doing shows, but it was always empty. I got to know Gary. We became really good friends, and I went down to Covent Garden every weekend. We would get a table at the nearby cafe, and we would order coffees, and we'd sit and play chess. And then Gary would occasionally he would go, oh, I, I, I'm going to go and do a show. And then we'd go off for 25, 30 minutes and do a show. Then we'd come back and keep playing chess. And then we would discuss his show. So I spent a lot of time talking about his street show and rewrite his scripts and sort of work at that. And I had a really good time. At that point, you weren't thinking, I'm going to build my own street show. No, I had a really high-paid programming job. Yeah. Yeah. And what was Gary doing in his show? <clears throat> oh, it's amazing. At that point, he had a really nice, small magic show. Or medium-sized. He played fairly big. He fills the magic corner completely. It's really a really nice show. Maybe in one way, it's my favorite street magic show of all time. And obviously, I saw it through many iterations, like many versions of it. At one point, he did a Russian roulette with a kid with eggs, where they had to smack eggs on their heads. So he had a lot of different things in the shows. Yeah, he, he gets bored after doing something for a while, and then he changes things around. Yeah. I love so it. So you're watching him do the show, just sitting at the table, playing... Yeah, and helping him write scripts. Like, we were scripts. talking about... Did magic all the time. Magic in life and playing chess. And yeah. Did you ever go around the corner to watch the guys on the West Piazza? Yeah, but not so much. I remember Pepe from that time. That's kind yeah. of the show that I really remember from that time. Because you didn't really, you weren't thinking, oh, I'm having an interest in street theater. You just want to have yeah, a Yeah, at that, that point, I, I wasn't yeah. interested in becoming a street performer. No. I was happy at my job and yeah. I, I just enjoyed the atmosphere down there. I love playing chess with Gary and having these discussions. Sometimes we would do create like magic experiments. We would go to the magic shop, Davenport's, which is just a couple of blocks from, yeah, from Covent Garden. Yeah. And we would just like find some weird prop that they had and buy two of it, one each. And then we'd go back to the cafe and we'd just see like, what kind of weird shit can we come up with with this. And we would just sit there and make things like we had an amazing vanishing spoon and teacup thing that we built like just stuff like that wow it's really nice cool so when was it that you said yeah alright I want to try doing a street show it was less that I said I want to try doing a street show more that I decided I don't want to do what I'm doing now yeah okay and then I guess I had sat down 
like in Covent Garden every weekend, every Friday and Saturday, I would just hang out there, playing chess, drinking coffee, and talking about life. Then I realized that that was a great thing to do on Saturday and Saturday. My friends spent every day of the week doing that. And I was like... And they had money in their pockets. Maybe I'm in the wrong business. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was doing really well as a programmer. Yeah. But I decided to quit. I needed some rest, so I took all the money I had saved up. And I went to Asia and spent six months there, just hanging out on a beach. And and I think when I was there, I decided, okay, I'm going to be a street performer. This is what I'm going to do. And then I burnt all the money I had. Because I tried once or twice before I left for Asia. I had tried to do street shows just for fun. And I couldn't do it. It was just horrible. I, it was so bad. It was so painful to just have people ignore me. It's hard. Yeah. Start. Yeah. So I couldn't... I, I had Especially, real, I guess, if you didn't have a... You didn't feel you had a strong base as a performer. Yeah. You which I didn't. Good, but yeah, yeah. I did not. So that makes it even harder to, to go out there and do it. Like in the rawest form of performance. Yep. Knowing that you don't have a strong performance personality. Yeah. And take that chance and that risk and go out there and do it. Yeah, they just ignore... I tried a couple of times before I left my job. They didn't like the accent? I mean, that should have been... That's one big factor. That was your crowd build. You know, I tried to do a show in Ireland once in a really heavy Swedish accent. I was like, maybe I should enhance my Swedish accent. Maybe I should speak a lot more Swedish accent like this. (laughs) Because that could add some character to the show. Who knows? And I was in Ireland, and I decided to try one show like this. And halfway through that show, I got into a fight with three guys on Grafton Street. <laughs> like, just a big fight. And I don't know if that would have happened anyway. But the fact that the first time I ever tried to do a show in a heavy <laughs> Swedish accent, I actually got into a fight. I, I sort of went, the Irish maybe the that, that experiment yeah. was interesting, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to go back to how I do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was after you had already been doing street. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had been doing street for a while. Yeah. Then I was sort of at performing. I had done it uh, a bit. But, so you, uh, go to, you go to Asia. Yeah, I went there, and that's when I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I knew from having tried it a couple of times that I wouldn't be able to bring myself to do it if I didn't really go for it. So I burnt all the money I had. I just sort of wasted it on shit on holiday. On purpose? On purpose. Say, like, I'm going to spend all this money yeah, so that I'm yeah. forced to... Yeah, and then I came back to London with, like, enough money to pay for, like, a month or two of rent. And then I just avoided doing street shows for a couple of days. And then by day four or something, I was in a situation where I was like, okay, if you, I'm going to you, you weren't now, going back to the job. You are like, I'm not going to No, 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 no I wasn't going back to the job. And then I was like, okay, if I'm going to eat now, I've got to make Whatever. 15 quid yeah. for dinner. Yeah. So I paid for the rent, but I deliberately put myself in a position where I was like, okay, if I'm going to eat now, I, I've, I've got to make the money for the food, otherwise I'll starve. Jesus. Yeah, it was really effective. Yeah. Well, I bet, <laughs> but that's a really weird position to put yourself in. Yeah, but it worked. Apparently. It, well, well, you know what? Like, I guess it wasn't like a dangerous thing. If I hadn't made any money, I had friends that would have, you know, given me dinner or whatever, but... I mean, even after a couple of days, you would get tired of asking your friends for food. Like, it's not that I would have starved to death. Yeah. Well, you could have come back to Stockholm, maybe. I could have gone back to Sweden. No, no, yeah, come back. If I really planned it, I could have gone back to it. my old job, probably. I could have, like... Your parents could have helped you out. My parents could have helped me out, yeah. But I just added that extra pressure that I think I needed. Yeah, you put yourself in a situation. Yeah, I, I'm not good at pushing myself through pain. Right. Like, I'm not so good at that. I'm, you have to... I'm, yeah, a like, situation that's almost a dire situation. Yeah, maybe we talked about that before. Like, I can't do a workout. But I did a lot of martial arts when I was young. And that was a great workout. 
yeah. for me because suddenly you've got a guy who's trying to hit you mm-hmm. and then if you don't really give it your heart you're going to get punched in the face far more than you do if you actually work hard yeah. so then I would get a good workout but I just need an added bit of motivation mm-hmm. on top of yeah. t- of telling myself I'm going to do this that's not enough for me I need someone who's actually going to punch me if I so in this case I deliberately was, yeah. put myself there so okay that was the punch if you don't learn to do street shows you're going to eat really crap food or starve yeah. okay and then I did shows now Gary's still there Gary's still there. So he's helping out maybe with the show? Of course, yeah, he's helped me out a lot. And actually, I had become friends with Nick Nicholas before. So when did you meet Nick? Uh, The year before that. He was passing through for like a week or a couple of days or a weekend. And he did some shows. You watched his show? I watched his show, was of course super impressed and and became friends with him a bit. We had like fun and did small card tricks. And I had enough magic skills with that to impress him. He sort of introduced me to some of the other big street shows. I think for a lot of people, there can be a problem that they're not respected by the established performers. And that was not a problem for me, because I'd been around in Covent Garden for a year when I started doing shows. So people sort of knew my face, and they had seen me impress Nick with some card tricks in a bar. And I was already kind of accepted, even though I was a really shit street performer in the beginning. I was terrible. Who, who was around back then that you would have met? Well, I mean, it's not, I mean we're only talking like 11 years ago, but it seems like way back, yeah. way back in 2002... Well, it's weird with Covent Garden because it's basically the same people that are there now. Mark was there. Pepe and Kino are the two people I really remember a lot. Like Kino was still working back then. No, Kino wasn't working much. He was just hanging out. I think I saw him one or two twice. Like, but Pepe was. Yeah. Like his show is the one I remember. But Kino was around all the time, and he was actually also helping me with my show sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of guy he would watch the show and then he would come up afterwards and go, "That was nice." Yeah. And he would give you one piece of advice, just a little thing, mm-hmm. and you would try it the next show, and your show would be a little bit better, and you would be like, wow, that was great. Just a very friendly, yeah, it was really nice. But yeah, ba- basically the guys that are there now, it doesn't change out so much. Yeah. But How I much? wasn't working on the main pitch, yeah. so I didn't meet them so much. I didn't yeah. like have a big, lot of interactions. Right, and they didn't we have a big We just sort influence. of saw each other, and they didn't have a big influence. Right. The people that had a big influence was probably Kino from helping me. And Nick, And maybe? Kino also gave me my cups. Oh, really? The cups that I use, still use today in my street show, Kino gave to me. Wow. He saw one of my shows and he liked it and he said, I want you to use these. I sort of had to use the cups to not be rude to Kino. Because right. when, when a legendary performer comes in and gives you a legendary item, yeah, like those cups are fucking amazing. They've been passed through some hands and stuff. And I wasn't even doing the cups and balls back then. What were you doing? What was your first show like? Uh, I did a lot of weird shit. You remember your first show? No. It's not so defined because I did so many half attempts. So even when you made the decision like, I have no money, I need to eat, and you did that, and you forced yourself to go to Covent Garden, you don't remember what that... I, I probably made the money those first shows from just, just, just card tricks. To, like, yeah. Just a small group of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember I had a really weird thing with a, had an electric racer that had a battery in it but looked like it didn't. I built an electric plug where the two prongs could be pushed into the... Yeah, I know. Uh, what you, into the, the, part into the, the plug. The plug, yeah. And then I had a magnet there so I could draw on the lamppost. I could draw an electric outlet with a whiteboard pen and then I could stick the plug in and then I could shave. <laughs> that was my crowd build. <laughs> that, that was good. It never built the crowd. No, it was... <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. a good idea. It's a good idea. And it looks funny, like, I, with whiteboard marker, I draw an outlet, plug in the shaving, shave, 
and then I plug it out and put it away and wipe away the whiteboard. Yeah. Like, it was nice. That's great. That's really nice. That was one thing. I did a shop cup routine. Maybe that, that wasn't best for a crowd, but you could put that in the middle of the show somewhere. I know, but I didn't understand anything yeah, back yeah. then. I was like, yeah. no one would want to watch that in the middle of a show, of course. Yeah, yeah. That was just to get their interest. Like, I knew yeah. nothing. Now I see how stupid that thinking was. <laughs> yeah. So how long do you feel like it took you as you're doing these shows and come going, you have Gary there, I guess Nick's around every so often, Kino's helping you out. Actually, there's some more people that used to help me. Um, well, Brian Bruner was hanging out there all the time. He's a musician, amazing musician. So the pitch was me, Brian, and Gary, basically. Yeah, yeah. Sean, who now does a lot of stuff there, he started out doing weird statue shit. He had all kinds of weird, crazy ideas. And then Pete Wardell, really great. Totally really great musician. Pete. He's a street performer as well. Yeah. And then, then and my... This, this is the summer where you said, okay, I have no money. I got to do a street yeah. show to make money. Yeah. So by the end of that summer, do you feel like you... <laughs> by the end of that summer, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm not embarrassed now. You felt good. You felt, you, I feel, you I felt stronger as a performer. I felt like, well, yeah, now I could sort of do a street show. I did like 10 shows a day that whole summer. I remember it was insanely warm as well, and I had to wash my clothes every day because right. they had these white sweat lines on them every day. And yeah, so I did one summer, and then my old boss from the programming job offered me a job to make games for the winner. It's been over six months since you've quit that job. And yeah, but, and he's also quit that job and started working for uh -huh. his brother at another okay. company. And they now need a good programmer. Okay. So he calls me up and says, hey, you want to make games? <clears throat> and now it's winter. So I'm like, okay, I'll work till April. So I, I work with them t for, till the April and make games for... We made games for the release of movies. I made the game for Van Helsing. Do you remember that movie? Great movie. Yeah, I remember the, the Hulk. The, the Hulk. The, the yeah. bad Hulk movie. What was the game? It was the game for the website. So yeah, no, was, what was the game? That you uh, made the Van Helsing game was actually maybe the best game we made. Uh, but I made a game that was a clone of the old Amiga Commodore 64 game, Commando. Oh, uh, yeah. From the Schwarzenegger movie. That's a great game still. And yeah, our clone good. was fucking great. Did you have the same cheat? Up, up, down, down, right, left, right, left, A, B, start? course then you I'm get, a purist guys. Brian you know that by now <laughs> <laughs> I made some games and then I, I was going to quit for April to start doing street shows and they said we really need to stay for another two months come on we really like we don't know like we need to finish these projects we don't know what to do and then I said okay I'll do it but I will only work three days a week and I choose on the morning of any given day, whether I'm going to work that day or not. Jesus. How so, do you get away with that? Because I was a good programmer. <laughs> so basically, I would wake up in the morning, and if the weather was good, I would go it. down to Covent Garden and do street shows. And if the weather was bad, I would go to the office and make games. Now, surely you're getting paid more to be the video programmer. Yeah. But, you, yeah. but, you, but, but I was also reaching a point where I was starting to make some money from Street Show. So, right. So, now, yeah. now this, is, this will be, you're starting your second season yeah. in Covent Garden on James Street doing Street Shows. Simultaneously programming when it was raining. Yeah. Which would have been a lot. So I did that for April, May, maybe a little bit into June. Yeah. And then I quit Then you're like, completely. okay, now I'm just going to focus on Yeah, this they wanted to keep me on with that thing, but I was like, no, I've, this is what I'm doing, like... I had a taste for it then, and I started to love it, and I knew that I was getting closer to having a good show. Like, And it's still just, at that point, still you, Gary, Bruno. Same thing, yeah. It's just three guys. And, on and James yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. I was no one else. Well, well on James, James Street was full of statues. Yeah, yeah, But sure. on that corner, it was just me, Gary. Caso wasn't there. coming through there. Nick I mean, yeah, there. he came through like one weekend. Nick as well came through like one weekend. Those guys didn't live in London. We lived there. Yeah. They just came through like once or twice. Yeah, yeah. So what point did you... the Earliest version of the show you have now been created. It started appearing that year. The it second started year. appearing that year. That's when you said, "All right, maybe cups and balls." Yeah, I went to Fism in the Hague, and that would have been two thousand and three. Yeah, did you compete uh, in Fism? Uh, no, I just went there as a just to see stuff. Yeah, so I went to the Magic World Championship, and around there is the time when my show started taking the shape it has today. I'd been given the cups from Kino yeah. and I had made a deliberate decision to not be Gazo. This was at the point where the Gazo clones were starting to appear and I right, right, right. and I don't work well with a harsh sense of humor or Yeah, like well he was kinda saying kind of the thing. standard for that kind of show. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Him and Nick are such amazing and yeah. I wanted to go in a different direction. Yeah. Even though I was using the cups, but I wanted to take it in a slightly different direction. I, I wanted to have a nice character on stage and in more the dapper so to, yeah. to, to try to play that character. So it was work. both a decision in that I wanted to be different from them, and I don't find aggressive humor so funny, right? So you're creating your cups and balls act. Yes, I reckon my cups and balls act, the way it is now, was created in the summer 2003. That's when it started. Then it evolved over the coming couple of years. But by the end of that summer, it was very recognizable to what it is now. And then it was what it is now, it just became a lot better afterwards. Yeah. And then you just worked it. You worked it hard. You At know. that point, I was still doing 10 shows a day. Yeah. I think my show was 20 minutes long, and I would often go down to um, the South Bank. Yeah. And the South Bank was not worked at that point. Well, and I, in a way, I'm killing myself, because at this point, my show wasn't so good. I wasn't making so much money. I was making doing 10 shows a day at the South Bank. I was making less money than I would now doing two shows anywhere sure, else. Sure, but, but it's your second and season. If, if I had found the South Bank... With the show I have now, I would have done a summer and retired. Like, yeah. so in a way, I'm like, yeah, oh, God damn it, why wasn't that? the quality there now is so different, though. I've now. never done a show in the South Bank in the time that I've had a good show. I've only ever done it when I had quite a bad show, when I was yeah. very new. Like, yeah. So. Um, so, 2003, you feel like you have a show that is working. When did you start traveling around with it? When did you say, okay, this is it? It, it, it was gonna... after that summer. And then, and then you had made a decision in your head. You went, this is it. And this one what I'm doing. Well, the, yeah, I finished that summer. And by the end of that summer, I was like, okay, I had a show I could live off in London. I'd worked two pitches in my entire life. South Covent Garden, South Bank. And I was really scared of doing it anywhere else. And you were still going to stay in London or you were going to come back to Sweden? What I realized was, I can probably do this anywhere. And I want to do this. And I want to do a lot of it. Yeah. And uh, I booked a round-the-world ticket and uh, flew, just flew out. And I, I did a 10-month tour. Have you ever used the round-the-world tickets? No. They're great. Yeah. I've done a bunch of them. And the place that sells them is like half a block from Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. So I just went there and said, I want a ticket. And they gave me a ticket. I, I think I, it you have cost, to make stops. And you have to make certain. Yeah, I think it cost 1,200 pounds. Yeah. That trip, I booked Delhi. Delhi was mainly to chill out. But it was Delhi, Bangkok, Singapore, Tokyo, Sydney, then flying, no, no, Melbourne, landing in Melbourne, flying out of Sydney to Christchurch, and then flying out of Auckland to LA, and then flying out of Vegas to London. That was my trip, 1,200 pounds. But I, I saved up a little bit of money. So part of the trip was, the I'm just going to hang out a bit. And part I'm of just going like, to rest a little bit, because I was tired. I, oh, I killed my voice that year. 
fuck. I so killed my voice. I was still working without an amp. I didn't have an amp. Yeah. My first years, I didn't have an amp. And I started halfway through the summer, my voice started breaking up. And while that was happening, my hats started going up. They didn't go up because my voice was breaking. They went up because my show was getting better. Yeah. But my voice was deteriorating. And I lost my voice and I started having pain in my throat. And I started eating these painkillers to stop the pain in my throat. And I basically pushed it an extra couple of months. And then I lost my voice for six weeks right. afterwards. Yeah. And I knew that I needed to rest. And that's when I went to India and stuff. And actually, I still have permanent damage to my throat from then, to my vocal cords. Yeah. But it was so hard because just when I started getting to the point where I started making any money so I could actually eat you real can't, food you, know, of, you can't work because you can't then, then my voice was going down yeah. and I just decided fuck it and I just got these painkillers and just decided to ignore the pain in, a, in retrospect it's a fucking stupid decision it's just gonna get a little It's no it's not so bad no, but it's nice. never going away yeah shit yeah <laughs> so I use an app now yeah <laughs> the lesson use yeah. an app uh, so when you're doing this around the world ticket, like I, you, you take a few months to kind of just chill out, but then you're gonna hit now you hit Tokyo. You're working in Tokyo. Yeah, and that was weird because I knew no one mm-hmm. and I knew nothing. Didn't speak and the language. Actually, I was in Singapore before, and it was really, really hot, like mm-hmm. tropical hot. It's always that's and, exactly what it's like. And all it the was time by the time I, I had a actually the thing I had quite a long break, so I landed in Japan like February or something. So I, I took some time off after that season, my second big season uh, in India. And, and then I worked a bit in Thailand and a bit in Singapore. And then I go to Tokyo. And when I land in Tokyo, I'm in shorts and T-shirt. And I think it's going to be like Singapore. Because in my head, obviously, those places are close to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's like February in Japan. And it's I land, cold. And it's a snow. I land in a snowstorm. And I only have shorts and T-shirts, basically. Like, what's... Uh, and I was freezing to death. And I didn't want to buy a warm shirt because I could have bought one in Singapore last week, really cheap. And in Japan, a warm shirt is really expensive. So it took me two weeks to bring myself to spend So you're walking around in shorts and a t-shirt, no jacket? No I had long pants. Right. But it took me two weeks to convince myself to buy a warm shirt. So what shirt. were you doing for two weeks, just hanging out? Freezing my ass out. Trying to do street shows. I got arrested so many times. or Arrested, I, arrested, or moved on? Uh, moved on, but I don't want to leave, kind of. I don't get taken into the station, but I'm like, you know, constant fights and arguments with people in costumes, in, in uniforms, that don't want to bring you into the station. They would bring you into the station, but they can't really be asked because you don't even speak their language. So it's do just you know, going to be too much of an administrative hassle. So when you're there, do you know whether or not you're breaking any rules or any laws? Or you no. Just- but I realized later on that there's, they have this system called Heaven no Artistu, which is a licensing system. And I believe, I'm, no, I'm not sure about this, but the way I thought for a long time at least that it is, and I still think it was that way, is that this licensing system has been hijacked by protectionist local performers. And uh, you have to do an audition to get the license, and the audition is only in the off-season once a year. Mm-hmm. So to get the license to do shows there... You have to go there completely when it's not even possible to do street shows and get the license. <laughs> and then you come back three months later and then you do shows. Like, yeah. So it's been hijacked by locals who don't want the competition from internationals. Yeah. So I was working in a city that has a strong licensing system and it's not possible for me to get it unless I'm willing to wait for nine months to do the audition. 
and uh, then you get in a lot of trouble because, uh, yeah, you just get hassled a lot. Ueno Park. I was in Ueno. I have a, some beautiful pictures from Ueno Park when I tried to do shows, and I got completely shut down after just two shows or something. But you you stayed there. You weren't going to give I up. I tried. No, I hate that sort of stuff. I don't give in. I'm a smart guy, and I have contacts. Like, I knew people at the Swedish embassy through friends of mine and shit. Like, I'm, I can talk to people, and I wasn't willing to take shit from people who become policemen. Not that I dislike policemen that much. It's don't just worry, that... policemen don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> okay. But it's still, <laughs> not, like, I'm the kind of guy, like, you know Gary that I spoke about before? The guy I was started to do street shows with? Yeah. He went to law school in Oxford in the same college that Tony Blair went to. They take 12 people a year. He went there. He's a lawyer, if he wants to be. He's never worked as a lawyer. Yeah. But he finished. He studied, yeah. He had really high grades. He cheated. But he had... <laughs> he, he called well, me once. a magician. So, of course, he, he cheated. Called me once. Said, he called me once and said, I got really high grades on the test. And I said, really? What? Like, you didn't study? And he was like, well, I used an old idea from an Anaman book. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, Hanneman <laughs> is a mentalist. He's a mind reader. Mind reader, mentalist. An expert at getting information in ways that it's impossible to understand where the information comes from or how you yeah. got it. I had been in arguments in Covent Garden with guards and policemen quite a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a tricky time in, at the Magic Corner then. And, I mean, I was a guy who still had a programming job during these arguments for a big company. And the other street performer who was involved in this was a, a trained lawyer who got his legal advice from the guy who wrote the laws about that. Like, so, I was quite a cocky in... Or, I was polite, but strong-minded in my interactions with people in uniform. But not that I'm rude. And when people in uniform are sensible, I completely respect it. But when they're not, I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. And if it goes to court, I'm going to bring a better lawyer and I'm going to do my best to destroy their life. Like, I will attack them. I will charge them with unlawful fucking. Like, I'll do everything. Yeah. I had it in here in Stockholm a couple of years ago. I was doing a show and a policeman comes up to me and goes, You're not allowed to do shows here. And I'm convinced I am allowed. Or he goes, You have to leave. You have to. You can't be here now. And I asked, My first question is, You mean now? Right now, today? Or you mean forever? Like, all the time. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, just today. And then I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'll be away out of here in five minutes. And I pack up and I leave. Because I realize something is going on. They want to have control of what's going yeah, on. Something and happening that day. Something is happening a... that day. Cool. Yeah. Great. I complete respect for that. And I pack up and leave. But if he had said, no, you're never allowed to be here. Then I would have been like, okay, well, you stay here. I'm going to do a show. I start a show now. I gather 20 people and start it. And then you arrest me for whatever you think I'm doing against the law. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, I'm going to figure out anything I can charge you with. And then we meet in court. Yeah. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. So that's sort of my position. And sometimes, I mean, there's so many reasonable policemen and there's so many unreasonable ones. And I, that's well, my, I, 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 I respect reason, yeah. but I don't respect idiotic orders and uniforms. Yeah. So, um, going back to uh, the first season, you're in Tokyo, you're doing your round new world trip. I was suffering in Tokyo, suffering freezing, in Tokyo, you're making no money, being stopped by the police. But you're not stopping, you're like, I'm going to keep doing this, I'm going to move to the next place. <laughs> I have another tale from the pitch for you. <laughs> a tale? It should be called Tales. 
Tails. I studied rhetorics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a sort of a straightforward. I use a piece of newspaper every show I do. I rip a full page out of a newspaper. Every show I do, I need one page. So if I do 20 shows, I probably need to buy two, right? And I was doing shows in Shinjuku, sort of the shopping district of Tokyo. And they closed... At that, I don't know, they probably still do it, but at that time, they closed the whole thing down for traffic on Sundays. And I was doing, like, short hit-and-run shows, hoping that no person would walk shows. past. Yeah, well, 15, 20. 15, 20. Maybe, maybe even 25, who knows. But Mostly was, English, a little bit of Japanese. Exactly. But you're getting a crowd, people are... I had learned... Uh, Butterfly Man once posted some Japanese lines... I remember seeing on that. Peanut. On Peanut, yeah. And, uh, and I had took some of those and I had a Japanese girl that I had a fling with in Singapore who helped me translate a couple more and that, that was my Japanese lines. Mm-hmm. I had like 15 to, Japanese lines in the show. Enough to get together the crowd. Enough to... Exactly. Yeah. And uh, basically a couple of random lines like Shikaku ni kite kudasai which means come a little bit closer or Chotto matte kudasai which means hold on or one moment like wait like and then my bottling speech. That was it. That was all I had in mm-hmm. Japanese. And I was doing this show. It's a really nice show too. Like, just a big crowd, lots of families. Really nice. I'm doing the show. They're really loving the magic stuff. And then I get to the end and I take out this piece of newspaper and I'm like, and here, a piece of newspaper! And the energy kind of goes weird in the audience. It just, I, I can feel that something is I really not like I it normally is. The story is. And, I, and I look up at the newspaper and I see that the page I'm holding up <laughs> is full of very explicit pornography. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I can't even read the Japanese newspaper. I just bought like a newspaper because I need the actual paper for the show. Yeah. And like, turns out in that newspaper, page 17 and 18 is full of porn. Right. And so it's not photos, it's just... No, no it was photos. Oh, they were photos. Photos. So you didn't even see the photos. Very explicit. You didn't porn. see the photos. But when you buy a newspaper to use in your show, you don't look through it. No, but you're using one sheet. Yeah. So when you're taking but that I sheet don't, out... Exactly, but I'm using one sheet, but I just tear one sheet off at a time. Right. So right? you didn't actually take a look. I didn't see it. I didn't like, look. Know, I'm in the middle of a show. I just rip off a page and go, no, a newspaper. Yeah. I don't even have to look. I've done it a thousand times at this point. So... There I am, illegally working in Japan without a visa, without a permit, at a place where I'm constantly being stopped and harassed by police, in front of a big crowd of families and children, shaking explicit pornography at them, (laughs) speaking a language they don't understand, and I've been using a lot of Japanese lines... So they think I speak Japanese. Right, so they think you, they, they know... They think I'm fluent. Yeah, they're like... And in reality, I can only parrot a couple of sentences. Yeah. So they think I speak fluent Japanese. So I'm shaking porn at these kids and families, and there's nothing I can say, there's nothing I can do to explain that they will even understand. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get out of it? I got so panicked. I sort of just stopped talking and just started packing my stuff away. <laughs> you didn't even finish the show. And they were looking, like, what is he doing? And I just packed away my stuff. And then I just said, goodbye. And I just left. <laughs> I just walked off. I was too scared. Yeah. I was too scared. I had already had trouble with immigration in Japan. Oh, God. So I was scared of being kicked out of the country. I just left. <laughs> and they were just standing there like, 
when is he going to do the ending that he was talking <laughs> yeah, about the whole show? Yeah, is it going to be a naked girl that's going to come out of that newspaper? <laughs> like, what is going to happen here? Yeah. I just packed my stuff and walked off. The adult males were really interested in the yeah. finale. Ooh, what's this going to be? <laughs> yeah, it's a... <laughs> I still <laughs> remember that. And I remember the sort of helplessness in that everyone thinks you speak a language, but you actually don't. You just learned a couple of minutes of it by heart. Yeah. Like, it's a real... Yeah, real disaster. Lesson learned. I, that year in Japan, I really went lost in translation. I went into a deep depression. It's sort of like I th- also think this is part of what being us, like traveling, like we do, is. I'd been living in London for a couple of years, and now I was on the road. I'd only been six months on my first big trip around the world, and then I hear that an old friend of mine tried to commit suicide back home in Sweden. And there's nothing you can do. You can't really stop this momentum now and just fly back. And even if you did, there's nothing you can do. And you just feel this helplessness. I'm in a country. I don't know a single person. Mm-hmm. I'm freezing. It's like snowstorms. And I'm standing there in a shirt and yeah, yeah, suspenders and big black pants. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do. And you can't talk to anyone. And it, you can't so even alone. do the shows. Like, it's just... And I went into deep depression. And I was really breaking up. Like, Lost in Translation is the only... Mm-hmm real description of it I was yeah. completely broken and I'm doing a show in Shinjuku and Chris walks past Chris from Funny Bones really nice yeah Chris uh, uh, Chris Peters I think he used to do a show in Covent Garden kind of on the site near the pitch where I was working yeah okay kind of just up on James Street really great original puppet act okay uh, with another guy and then he moved to Tokyo he went to Japan with no money he saved up the money for the ticket and then he left so he lands with like 20 bucks in his pocket. Like, okay, I'm going to live here now. I'm going to do shows. Crazy. Like but you, but different. Kind of like me, but I actually had a little buffer by that point. Yeah. But I knew him from Covent Garden, and then he had left. And I'm in Japan. I'm doing my show in Shinjuku, another show in Shinjuku. And I'm so completely on the verge of a psychological mental breakdown. And I see his face. He walks past. It's like glowing. And I wave at him. And he waves back. And I know it's him. I'm in the middle of a show. And I run after him like, Chris! Chris! What are you... Oh my God! I, I oh, need you. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm hugging him like, oh, Wow! I, Salvation. Amazing seeing you. And he's like, How's it going, child? Like, How's it going? And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so glad to see you. Oh, Oh, friendly face! Like, he what are you no doing tonight? What you've Let's go and have a yeah. beer. Like, what are you doing now? You want to go and have a cup of coffee? Like, yeah, that's what he says. He's like, um, Charlie, there's like a hundred people there. You're doing a show, <laughs> and I remember going, "Fuck the show!" <laughs> well, you want to have a coffee? Like, I don't. <laughs> Come on, man. Let's. Uh... And uh, I need you right now. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he invites me back to stay in his house. And I leave the ho- shitty hotel that day, and I, he takes me in for quite a while, actually, a couple of weeks, I think. I'm just staying with him and Cabo and Yukina, and um, com- gets completely taken care of them. It was great. Wow. Um, my, so my first uh, knowing of you, is that, I don't think that doesn't make sense what I just said. When I heard about your existence, I was in Copenhagen. It might have been like 2003. When was the first year you were in Copenhagen? I worked Copenhagen really late. Yeah, I know. Oddly. I, I don't know what, what it was it, like, but it's sort of like, I think it's hard. One of the last 
places you go to to work is your hometown. At least that was it to me. Like, what do you mean? It took me a couple of years before I tried to do a show because it's so in close my hometown to or in Copenhagen. Yeah. yeah. So well, I arrived whatever. there late. I think it's two thousand after two thousand six or even seven. No, it's it after two thousand six. I, I think, don't think maybe maybe it is two thousand six. Maybe it's two thousand six. Yeah, because I had been going there for like years and years. And you remember Previn? Previn, yeah. So yeah. Previn was a guy that would just hang out on the street. He yeah. was a street performer, but hang out on the street all day long. He helped street performers and helped whatever you need. And he's like, "You need to do what Charlie's doing. He does magic." I'm like, "I don't know who he is." He's like, "Oh no, he's it's really good what he's doing. You should try doing that." And I'm like, <laughs> "Who's this Charlie guy?" He's talking about. <laughs> And then it was, uh, it, I think it was my the following year when I saw you in Edinburgh for the first time. Yeah. Because that's when I came up to you and I'm like, Previn told me about you. Oh. And I, finally, and I, got, finally, I got to watch your show because he, was, he had pumped you up so much. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is the guy you started. Because I came up, you know, you're working at the, uh, the Alcove yeah. on the High Street. And I was like, oh, this is Charlie. This is the Charlie he's talking about. I'm like, it's a great show. It's really fun. <laughs> and, then, and that's when you were like dancing in the Spiegel tent doing your swing dance. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so we hung out. That's when we met in Edinburgh. Yeah. That was whatever it was like. Yeah, that would have been maybe, maybe that six was, or seven. Yeah, to, six, yeah six or like seven, that. I'd say. Yeah, so that's when I first knew about you. Because I thought it was interesting that you were new, but you hadn't been. Like, you, you were polished. Yeah. Was what it was. Like, you had... And that, and that was part of what Previn was saying. He's like, he's working all the time. He works every day. Does a lot of shows. Yeah. Really hard. In and Copenhagen, my first years, I was doing, like, also five, six, seven, ten shows a yeah. day sometimes. You would work but, but so by the time much. I, by the time I arrived in Copenhagen, because I arrived late, you were, you were the, one of the people people were talking about in Copenhagen. Yeah, I, I would go every year. Yeah. And do this... Because I, I yeah, did arrive five good or six then. or seven, like five or six maybe. I six years in a row. It was my first, yeah. Uh, uh, Copenhagen, well, it's still kind of nice, but it wasn't really nice. Yeah, it was much better. You can have yeah. two big shows happening at the same time. Like two yeah. full, yeah. massive circles. It's weird. Shows. I feel like I've known some of the great pitches. There was a point that I've heard about when Japan was amazing, like the 90s, oh, when it was the best place in the world. I've experienced <laughs> a couple of those places. Like Ireland in 2004 or five when they had their big economic boom. You were in Grafton Street. Yeah. Like, I've experienced that. I've experienced a couple of places that have been those great places of their time. Maybe that place was the best place in the world that year. Yeah. You know? I've yeah. experienced a couple of those. And now, it seems like all the pitches where I go, they're not so good. And I know... Those great pitches are somewhere. I just don't know where they are. Are they? I don't know. I'm, they, I'm sure there is. I'm sure. It's probably something. There's probably some golden pitches somewhere. I'm sure. And it's got to be in some weird place that we won't even think about. Poland, like Warsaw. Warsaw 2015. It's going to kill. Well, I was that's, just that, in... that's, someone's going to come back like, but you don't I, know, made, but... I bought my flat and paid for it in cash from Warsaw. Yeah, fucking Warsaw, yeah. <laughs> It, it's going to be like that. But I don't know because I, feel I like just so don't much, know. I feel like there's so much more control now over things. Like you know, this yes, in the, the pitches to... where you've always gone. No, no, just in, around the world. No, there's places, dude. It's always going to be somewhere that's the place. Yeah, and there's only going to be three people that know about it because that's what makes it the place. Right. Is that there's no competition. Yeah. There's no one else. Like that's what makes it. So those places exist now. It's just that I'm like an old guy that doesn't understand email. <laughs> I don't know where those places are. Yeah. I'm not. I'm too comfortable to go sure. and explore to find them. Yeah, but you don't need to find them now because you can. No, you, no, you, I don't need your, to. But I yeah. want to. I yeah. would love to find. Yeah. Like, I wish I could stumble upon. Like, 
Yeah. So at a certain point, you're moving on, which is why I mentioned, like, I guess when I had heard about you, what maybe we were going to say, like, around 2006. Then you're rolling, you, you have your show, you have a solid show, you've been working it, you've been traveling around, yep, step yep. consistently all year round, or taking breaks? I did basically three round-the-world trips in three years. Yeah. And worked all year round, no breaks, if it wasn't raining, and explored and worked certain pitches. Like, I had a good mix for a while there of going to places where I knew it would be good, and going to places where I thought no one else had ever been. Yeah. Sometimes it was... Terrible. Sometimes I found these gold mines and worked them, and did ten shows a day there, and just moved on. No one might have ever worked them since, and I just did traveled a lot. Yeah. I had no home. I had no base. Everything I owned was with me all the time. And and, how and this is when I became a proper buscarada because when you travel like that, yeah, you don't have everyday clothing. No, laundry is too difficult and annoying. All your clothes, it's your costume. You have like two sets of your costume and five shirts mm-hmm. and a bunch of underwear. And that's it. And then you just wear that all the time. You use that all the time. And that's also de- developed my costume because I needed a costume that was striking enough to work as a costume in the street and to show people that, oh, there's going to be a show, but sort of subtle enough so I wouldn't get beat up in the pub afterwards. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the that's sort of mix. Good. Of that's that's <laughs> okay, <right. laughs> and my costume is still is like that. It's theatrical while still being not too theatrical. Sure. And I can go to a dive bar or to a fancy to, club. You can go to Doc Holliday's and have a it, it worked. Yeah, I've been to Doc Holliday's in that uh, <laughs> club, in, in that costume, and I've had all those pabs with you. Well, it was the best beer of... 18, 1893. 1893. America's best. You get to drink it. <laughs> Apparently, when you're with Magic Brian, you've got to drink a lot of it. <laughs> Alright, so now here we are, flash forward, it's 2013, you've uh, street performing for quite a while. In the world that we live in, we, we exist in a street theater, I would put you there with Nick and Gazzo as the top three cups and balls shows that are... Well, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Well, if but, you think but, so, I take that as an amazing I, compliment. Well, I think you solidified your place in street theater with cups and balls, with those props. They're three different shows. I've gotten away with a lot of stuff with those things. Yeah, yeah. very successful I've, show. It does yeah. really well. I think a lot of um, magicians look up to you that are wanting to do a street show, a close-up street show. Cellini, I guess, would be another one, but he's passed now. So, I can't really count him. Yeah, he, but he definitely wasn't yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, amazing great. But you're... I would say you have a lot of respect... Uh, you get respect from colleagues in what you do and in the category of street magic that you do um, and now what you've done is you've taken all your skills you've taken all your street and you've taken uh, your skills as a magician and your skills as a programmer and now you've created a whole other thing that you're doing with the iPad act yeah yeah, yeah. I, I make new acts quite often like three or four times a year I make a new act based on a brief of we need this and then I so when like, obviously, you're not bored of street theater. We just did this festival. I know you love yeah. working on the street. In fact, I'm the opposite of bored with street theater. Yeah. I'm, you miss in, it. In 2009, when I kind of stopped doing street shows, I had very little of it for two or three years. And then I got to a point where I went nuts and I lost myself. And I'm, I realized that I have to do street shows. And I need this community as well. We're yeah. a community. Yeah. We're a tribe. I'm, Absolutely. I lost my tribe in a way by leaving. I'm, 
I didn't meet the people that I need to hang out with to feel good. But you didn't leave so. out of um, boredom. You left out of other opportunities. And it, yeah, and but it, I also left out of this wrong sense that I've, like, this... I won Sweden's Got Talent, as you know. I won Sweden's Got Talent, and I got all these opportunities, and there would be a voice that says, this is what you have to do. Or like, this is the obvious step to go to. And I would just go that way. And then I realized that that's not what I want to do. That, that's... It, I would, like... A lot of the world is very shallow and flat and boring, Right? A lot of the world is very shallow and flat yeah. and boring. That's why there's and, all those and, Got and, Talent shows. Yeah, exactly. And you won one of them, though. I know. But what I'm saying is I went according to these rules that were sort of just there in society in my head, and it's wrong. Like, I went into the shallow water, and it's not nice. Like, I love doing street shows. It's like... Grounds you. It's necessary. It grounds me. Not only grounds me, but it's sort of the core of stuff. Like, it's so... Basic, and it's not just the shows; it's the people as well. Like, when you stop doing street shows, you start stop meeting the people because they don't live where you live. If you don't go to the pitches and sit and wait in the queue, you're not meeting those people automatically. So I lost the contact with the people, and that's really brought me down. Because frankly, compared to the street performers, the normal world is boring as hell. It's yeah. really terrible. Like, it's really... I, I told someone, what, but I, I really mean that. I would rather sit in a pub with a street performer I don't like than with a normal person I like. Yeah. I, I mean that, really. <laughs> that was... It's completely... It's, there's something that's lost. Like, yeah. um, so th- that's the, another thing. Like, I love doing street shows. And I think now, hopefully, I've reached a point where I've decided I will never stop. I was a couple of months a year and then I'm still into it. I'm still doing it. I'm still meeting the people. It keeps you alive. It's really great. And you're about to embark on a, a, your first little tour. Yeah, actually, it's now 11 o'clock in the evening and 8 o'clock tomorrow I'm leaving and I haven't packed and I'm going to be on a two-month street show tour. Well, you're starting so where? Thanks, Brian. <laughs> you agreed to this interview. Yeah. Well, I'll give you the chance. Is there anything else you, before we end the interview? Is there anything else you want to? I don't know. I, throw out I'm there? thinking if there's any funny stories. There's so many. There's I, so many. There's so many. That's but the, you told some really life. good ones. You told some really good. Yeah, yeah that's our life. Yeah. I have one from Auckland. Is it the Auckland Busker Festival? No. Just work in Auckland. Yeah, I've actually I've never done a busker festival in New Zealand, but I've worked quite a bit just street, and uh, I was touring the southern island of New Zealand with a girl. Um, you sound like you're with a girl a lot. I'm a, a sensitive man. I don't like being alone. Mm-hmm. But I was touring the Southern Island with a girl, and <coughs> it was really rainy. And now I know that New Zealand, Southern Island, New Zealand is like the second rainiest place in the world. But then I didn't know that. And we was trying to do shows, and it just wasn't possible. Where were you trying to do shows? All over the Southern Island of New Zealand. Just like... Queenstown, Christchurch, Dunedin. I was everywhere. For like a month. And it was just... Everything was rained off. And I spent all my time basically eating in good restaurants and having sex in hotel rooms. Like, I I spent <laughs> all the money I had gathered. And so this is you, quite late. So this so is when you had the girl with you or not with Yeah, you? yeah. I had a oh, buffer. Okay. I had built up a buffer where I could afford to do shit. 
And then I spent all of it just during one month of rain in New Zealand. Or a couple of weeks of rain in New Zealand. Just hotels and restaurants. It doesn't sound like a terrible option. No, no, but I did that, right? And then we said goodbye and I went to Auckland. And I'd never been to Auckland before. And I land there. And some people have told me that Vulcan Lane, you, that there's possible to do magic shows at Vulcan Lane. Go there. Mm-hmm. So I get a cab to Vulcan Lane. And when I'm paying the cab driver, I realize I have only 30 cents left after I paid him. I have 30 That's cents. That's all your money. That's all my money. And I'm like, okay. So I, I, I had this bicycle lock and I lock my bag to a lamppost with a bike lock that I carried for that purpose. And I take up my table and I do three shows. What bang, year are we talking about now? Yeah, two, six, two, seven, something like so that. So you've been in it like Yeah, like a couple years. of years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I set up and do a couple of shows, collect the money, pack everything down and I walk around and find a cheap hotel and I go in there, get a room and pay for two nights. I go up and have a shower and then I come down and say, What's the best Thai restaurant in town? Because I really like Thai food. For vegetarians, Thai food is really great, no matter where you are. And he goes, oh, it's five blocks that way, two blocks that way. I'll draw it on the map. And uh, this gorgeous girl had put her phone number in my hat in one of the shows I'd done just now. And I call her up and say, hello, I'm the guy that you put your number in my hat. You want to have dinner? She goes, yeah, great. I'll meet you there in half an hour in this Thai restaurant. She goes, okay. And I go there. And she comes in. And we sit down. Ordering some food and a bottle of wine. And it's been like four and a half hours. Since I arrived for the first time. On the northern island of New Zealand. My first ever time in Auckland. I landed with 30 cents in my pocket. I'm sitting in the best Thai restaurant in town. A great dinner. A bottle of wine. A hotel room paid for two nights. And a gorgeous date. And you said... I love being That's a my best performer. ever street performer story. Like I have some great negative ones, but that's by far the, the most positive. as far as positive street show stories goes. That's about it for me. That I can't imagine anything else. No. And I do love that. Because that, that wouldn't happen in another situation. It it's impossible. It's no. impossible. And also the the fact because you, you take the chances to go. All right, I'm just going to do this, and I have thirty cents. Yeah. And I'm to do the shows. It's the best. It's the best, and the people. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And the community. It's a family. It's a big family. Yeah, I remember arriving in Sydney and staying in the shittiest hostel I've ever been to. Ever. And I've been to a lot of hostels. I've lived for seven years of my life in random hostels. And I arrive there, and it's so bad, I can't... I, I, I call Nick up. And I'm like, Nick, I'm in hell. I don't know where to stay here in Sydney. Like, what am I going to do? I, I can't do this. And he goes, go to my friend, Sean, Mike Boy. I, I had never met Sean at that point. And he just gives me his phone number. He just <laughs> give him a call and say that I told you to call him. So I call this random number up like, um, hello, my name is Charlie. I am from Sweden. <laughs> like uh, that? <laughs> no, no, but you know. Yeah. Nick said I can stay in your house. And Mike Boy's like, are you a street performer? And I'm like, Yes. What kind of street performer? Well, I do sort of a magic circle show. I And I remember Sean going, Well, actually, there's some people staying here. My house is full. But if you really need it, you can sleep on the floor. 
I'll be home at five. Just come to this address, and I just get there, and I can stay there. Like that's amazing. Was anyone else actually there? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there were like two people staying in this house at that point, and there was no space for me, but I could sleep on the floor. Yeah. Like that's amazing. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, you arrive in New York, and you're like Ryan. Or I'm, a, I'm a, the A B B and B. Yeah, A B B and B. Yeah, can I stay? Of course. Then yeah. Tim called the next day. I'm like, yeah. oh. I crashed a car once outside of Nick's house. I was trying to park. I was like 26. I, I get a driver's license. And the day after I get it, I go to Australia and buy a car. Pay for it in coins. What? I arrived there just before Australia Day. I made a lot of money and then I oh, bought, a then car. bought a car. And I had enough money in coin to pay for it. So I paid for it in coinage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what will you do? No, you sounded like you left here and arrived there and bought a no, car. No, no, no. I arrived and then I spent like a week or two in Sydney and I yeah. made money and I bought a and car. And got a car to drive to Melbourne. Yeah. I went to JP's house. JP checks out the motor, makes sure it's good so I don't get stuck somewhere out in the desert. And then I drive to, to Melbourne to Nick's house. And everything goes flawlessly. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I survived this so you just hell got, journey on the wrong side of the road. You just got a driver's license before you left Sweden. Yeah. Well, the highway was fine. doesn't matter which side you drive on, but once you get into Melbourne... Yeah, I know. In, like, the cities. Melbourne is weird to drive in, and you're driving on the wrong side of the road. And I just got my driver's license. I'm in a half panic the whole time. And then I finally arrive at Nick's house. Yeah. And Nick is like, Oh, great, you made it. Park there. I'm like, I made it. And then I, as I'm parking, I just bump into his neighbor's car. <laughs> <laughs> The neighbor comes out running, really angry. And like, hi, I'm Charlie. I'm Charlie. And actually, he was really angry. And we were like, relax. Any damage, I'll pay for it. And he just kept shouting, like, and Nick as well, just relax. And we were just relax. If there's any damage, we'll pay for it. I'm here. It's all good. He's like, relax. I'm standing here. I'll pay for it. And then finally, he realizes what we're saying. He's like, And he walks over to his car to look at the damage. And he has some sort of big plastic bumper on his car. And that's the only thing that's taken damage. Right. And he sort of pushes it out. And I'm like, is it going to be expensive? And he goes, I think that was it. (laughs) Have a good night. And it was fine. But, yeah. (laughs) But I love that community of people that kind of take you in and... It's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's a big family. It's a big family, incredible. yeah. It's very special. It is very, very special. It's really like... And here in Stockholm, I'm so lonely. I can't stay here. You helped to, to create. A, you helped to create a festival so that people will come. Exactly. That's my, my sole purpose of the Stockholm being, Street being part of organizing the Stockholm Street Festival. It's like an invite my, my friends. friends. <laughs> Hang out with me. <laughs> Someone oh, will yeah. have a beer and listen to me whine. Like... <laughs> I've lost so much money in that fucking festival that's the only reason it's worth every penny it's just to get people to come here to have a beer it's almost like paying to have friends <laughs> kind it's like of, yeah. I'm going to spend money to get my friends to come here yeah. it's like an yeah. with them yeah. I'll, I'll pay for the flight just come here just, just come please, 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 please. <laughs> so I wanted to finish with something because I always like it always ends very naturally I have a train in eight hours and I haven't got a pack mm-hmm. for two months of tour. But this is the guy I said, you want to do the interview? Yeah, fine, no problem. I'm like, you need me to help you or anything? No, no, no. It's just packing. It's fine. It's easy. I can do laundry. You do it when you're sleeping. Oh, shit. Laundry. 
gotta do laundry. Oh man, I'm gonna get up in eight hours, but I gotta do laundry before that. Yeah. Shit. So <laughs> you put laundry, but you can still talk because <laughs> you gotta wait for the laundry. Well, well okay. No, well, no, no, no. Should we have a break and lo- start the laundry? We just have laundry. We can just wrap it up right now. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> That's natural. <laughs> <laughs> The natural break oh, is you, you I remind me that I have to do the laundry before I fly out for two months. I think that's, that's perfect. a perfect. That's I think, a natural break. I have to be honest. I think that's the perfect way. To, have you, how long have you Charlie. saved that for? <laughs> no, I, didn't. I just actually remembered myself right now. Shit. But I think that's a good way to end the interview with Charlie Caper is reminding him of something he needs to do last minute before he leaves <laughs> for several months. Oh, laundry! I hate laundry. Well, thank yep. you, Charlie, for having the festival and for um, taking the time to do the interview. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> the end. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. We throw a ridiculous amount of time into the production of each episode, then put them out into the world for free because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide the sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. If you enjoy the content, I'd like to remind you that we're currently running a fundraising campaign. Our goal is to wipe out the project's debt by the end of 2014, and I'm super pleased to report that we're well on our way to reaching that objective thanks to the generous contributions of many of our listeners. Want to see how close we really are? Then head over to the Busker Hall of Fame website and click on the donate link at the top of the page. You'll be able to check out the current running total, and while you're there, consider making a donation yourself. Do keep in mind that none of the staff get paid for the time we put into this project, but covering the costs of hosting the site, buying microphones, digital recorders, and editing software, all these things do add up. To date, I've been covering most of these expenses because I wanted this resource to exist so much that I was willing to pay for the privilege of not only making it a reality, but also creating the content. Now I'm hoping that you'll pitch in to keep this project afloat. This crowdsourcing initiative is your chance to tell us, with your cold hard cash, that you want this project to continue, and we look forward to seeing your name in our growing list of spectacularly talented donors. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us wipe out our deficit so that we can keep things rolling into 2015. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take you just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Busker Hall of Fame with its ever-growing collection of really cool street theater photos from around the world. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. Now, before signing off, I wanted to recognize a new-to-me term that I heard during this conversation that so perfectly describes a certain street performer reality that it needed some clarification. What's the term again? The uh, buskerado? Oh, yeah, I think uh, Beautiful Shoe has this word for busker. He, actually, I talked about it. He Thanks for giving him credit, but he didn't come up with that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I think that's... I the, forgot we said came up with it. Well, I heard like, it from him. I know. He, he lo- Yeah. He uses it as a derogatory term. 
Buscarado. Buscarado is the street from who wears their costume, wears costume as their normal outfit. Yeah. On behalf of myself, co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh, Magic Brian, who both captured this interview and created the preliminary edit, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Fuck the show. You want to have a coffee?